This podcast was originally recorded for DevChat TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another podcast of Sustain Our Software. Today we have with us on the panel Richard Litzauer. Hey, how's it going? And John Schlinker. Hey, everybody. And I am Eric Berry, and it's so good to be here. Today, uh, we kind of had a lot of pre-chat around what we're going to talk about, and you know, as any new podcast getting started, we want to make sure that we, uh, we know what we're talking about. But the three of us got together before this call for about 15 minutes and just started talking and talking and talking. And, and uh, through, the, through that conversation, we realized we should probably be recording this. So uh, here we are. We're really excited to talk about it. Now, the biggest topic at hand that we've, been, that we've been talking about and that's been on a lot of people's minds is the brand new GitHub sponsors rollout. Now, for those that don't know, GitHub recently announced a new feature that's built into GitHub for maintainers for open source projects. And the way it works is you can add a sponsor button onto your GitHub repo, and that sponsor button is configured through a funding.yaml file. In that funding.yaml file, you can add additional funding uh, sources to it so that when somebody clicks on that link, it'll show a list of different ways to donate to that project. And also for those select few that have been chosen initially, it will allow them to actually receive funding directly via credit card contribution, a monthly recurring credit card contribution. And uh, there's definitely some mixed feelings behind this. Perhaps I'll start with my thoughts on it. I've been thinking about open source funding on GitHub specifically for about two years. And for those who don't know my background, I launched CodeSponsor back in 2017, and, I, and uh, CodeSponsor, what we did was we placed an unobtrusive sponsorship link directly on a GitHub repo, and the way I did it was using a dynamic SVG. So basically, I would get all of these companies that want to be able to connect to developers specifically under certain projects, and they would provide funding, and then I would just show these these sponsor links on GitHub in the README anytime somebody would come. And it kept going on and on and on. And in December of 2017, we had over 1,000 participating repos, and we were sending out over $10,000 a month. And then GitHub shut us down. Uh, they, they blocked us out. They said, we don't want to do this anymore. In fact, they, they actually got a complaint, and then that spiraled. And so I have a, I have a bit of a background with GitHub when it comes to solutions in open source funding. And at the time, our friend Devin Zugel didn't work for GitHub. And as you know, since 2017, the ownership has switched from, you know, from the core uh, over to Microsoft. And so now that Microsoft owns it and Nat Friedman came in and started taking over, Devin Zugel reached out to Nat and said, hey, why don't we try this stuff? Why aren't you doing this? And so Nat hired her. And now Devin is in, in uh, she's basically the head of product around open source sustainability, which is fantastic. She, if you haven't met her, she's a phenomenal person. She is just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person. And the new sponsorship was primarily under her direction. So in my view, knowing the history of, GitHub's desire to help fund open source back in 2017 and 2018 up until 2019, 
I think there's such a massive shift. So my view, sorry, this is a long story to get to, to my opinion, but my opinion is that this is a fantastic first step, a fantastic first step because we all want to solve this problem. And there might be pros and cons to everything, but the fact of the matter is they're addressing it and they're doing something about it. And they've actually made it possible for people to get paid. And they've also made an official place to say, here's the forms that you can pay me directly on GitHub. So I'll leave it there. That's my initial thoughts. John, what do you think? Well, th- thanks for the background, Eric. I mean, yeah. We, yeah, we were all talking about this, as Eric said, before we hopped on here. And I come, I come from a little bit of a different background. So it, for those of you who don't know my background, I spent about 20 years in, in business before I learned how to program. And I just, I've only been programming for five or six years now. And I spent a lot of time in supply chain and strategy consulting, spent a lot of time thinking about platform business models and things like that. And so when I think about this funding problem as a maintainer in open source, I also maintain about several hundred libraries on GitHub. I mean, we have a fairly massive developer community that we maintain. And so sustainability to me and this entire issue is much more nuanced and much more complicated than just solving a funding problem. To me, it's also, you know, how do, we, how do we maintain the integrity of the ecosystem and how do we not corrupt the motives of the people involved and how do we not incentivize, you know, anti-patterns and behavior that we don't want to see in the ecosystem. And we already have some of that. If you think of like, the, the way I kind of looked at this was when GitHub announced GitHub sponsors, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so one problem we already have with funding, existing funding solutions, and this is my view and it may not be a popular view, but if you look at code as a, as a supply chain, we have, you know, like the raw materials of the supply chain. And those would be like libraries that are utility libraries and, you know, micro libraries, things that typically don't have communities. Yet, these are some of the libraries that require a tremendous amount of domain expertise. They require a lot of hard thinking in solving problems and things that are more algorithmic. Not, not always. There's no hard or fast rule here, but they tend to be things that are much more generalized. And then, in, you know, as you move up into higher level components, you know, frameworks and, and tooling and things like that, these libraries are using those micro libraries and so on and so forth. And then I would say user interface libraries are things that are applications or CLI tools and things like that, things that are used by an individual, but they're not actually used as a library. I kind of look at those as the finished goods of the code supply chain. And my view is that with that big explanation there, my, my view is that most of the funding solutions today, just you know, as a consequence of how economics work, tend to favor those finished goods types of projects, whether they warrant that you know, funding or not. Um, I'm not really giving an opinion on that, but I think that there's an opportunity for funding. We need to find a way to kind of push funding down to the systemic parts of the supply chain to the libraries that don't have communities, but still, you know, where, where there's a, a lot of burnout happening and developers are solving hard problems and spending a lot of time thinking about optimization and things like that. And so I'll, I'll end with this observation on GitHub sponsors. I also think it was a fantastic thing. I think that they are making it easier to pay people. They're also disintermediating all of the existing solutions in a way and basically kind of forcing all the other solutions to play through them now, which seems a little bit aggressive to me. But hopefully, I do, I do think over time, it has potential to be a really, really good 
lead into other much bigger things. But I really hope that we can find a way to fund the projects where, you know, like the left pads and the event streams and the types of projects where there are, you know, the biggest systemic risks to the ecosystem and not just the flavor of the day and interesting project that's popular right now that's being used by everybody. So for me, I, I very much agree that this model tends to favor certain types of projects. Tidelift and GitHub collaborated on this change. And I was looking at Tidelift's list of projects which need lifters. And just one of them that I know of, I just clicked on, you know, Minimist is written by Substack. It's a parsing package that hasn't been updated since 2015. There's 28 PRs on it, but it doesn't really matter because Substack tends to write code, which is, this is code which I built, which does one thing, does one thing well, and doesn't need to be maintained. doesn't need to be edited. It's just, it's there. It works. I just checked on GitHub. Uh, according to their package manager system, it's been used by 3 million packages, basically, which is a ton, right? And Tidelift says this is an income estimate of $19 a month. And $19 a month isn't a whole ton for the risk of having this project be available or for maintaining this project. I don't even know what that works out to. What's 19 divided by 3 million or something as, as far as cents per user? At the same time, should packages like this really, do they need to get sponsored? right? I don't know. At some point, part of the great thing about code is that every single work hour can be sort of offloaded to a computer that just sort of does stuff. Those 3 million people aren't individually asking. They're not asking a human to do that work. They're automating the process to the point where it's just a whole lot easier. So for me, basically... Mechanical Turk. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. The whole reason I bring this up is that there are different types of projects. This isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. It's a solution that fits certain types of projects and certain types of people, which is also okay. It's really useful to actually share in the conversation and figure out, hey, how do we fund people? I wonder what's next. I'm not sure. This kind of doesn't cover all of the bases. For instance, Pia, who's not on the podcast right now, uh, runs Open Collective. Open Collective funds groups a lot more effectively than the GitHub Sponsors Project. Uh, GitHub Sponsors doesn't really fund organizations. It funds individuals. And that's a different problem that isn't getting solved according to GitHub Sponsors. So I wonder how that's going to change in the future. Yeah, to your point, I think, uh, so it kind of appears at first glance that GitHub set up the model to allow both projects and individuals to be sponsored. But you're right, it really is just individuals. And, and I guess that makes sense to a degree. If you think about the analogy that you just gave with Minimist, I was thinking about this a lot over the past couple of weeks. And in fact, we've been thinking about this as you guys have for a long time. And I, I think that it, an approach where it's easier to fund maintainers who maintain a lot of libraries is an approach that needs to be explored more. And it, it shouldn't be done exclusively. I think we're going to need a lot of different or at least more than one approach to solve this problem. But I think there's a tremendous amount of value, at least in Node.js, in libraries that do one thing and do it well, that other libraries can depend on. And I mean, really depend on. I don't mean just programmatically, but you know, you can count on that library to do that thing. And, you know, a lot of people don't think about this aspect of it when they look at micro libraries. They they think like that thing doesn't need to be maintained that often. And um, that's true. But let's say as a maintainer of lots of microlibraries myself, last year one time, and you can you can find this this on GitHub, I pushed up a relatively harmless little 
regex change. Yep. <laughs> you know, as soon as I say regex, everybody <laughs> out there is like, no, there's no such thing as a harmless regex change. But, you know, and I know I'm one of those I, people who uses regex a lot. And I, nope. I had tons of unit tests and I didn't ant- anticipate a regression. And I literally shut Google's application servers down and Mozilla's for like two or three hours. It was apparently their continuous, their CI actually merged in my changes. I did a patch because it should not have been anything more than a patch. It was, it was actually fixing a bug, but that's when the pressure is evident yeah. and the fallback on people who maintain microlibraries, people don't consider that type of thing. When that kind of stuff happens, when it happens and I have to triage that, you're not going to see that kind of, of uh, nuclear fallout in a UI library. You know what I mean? Something yeah. that's just used in development, but... That's my two cents on that that whole thing. I think it just needs to be more equitable for, for the for the maintainers. Risk, I think, is is the the main word. To extrapolate it, I, don't know, I was reading this morning about there's a movement in Europe right now to figure out how to get drones to patrol borders. So you actually have like groups of drones which go around and identify humans and figure out is this person a threat or not. If so, I'll alert the police. Yeah, because because uh, what could go wrong with that? I what mean, could go wrong? Right. right. It sounds, so, it sounds like a perfect yeah. yeah. This was on The Intercept, so obviously they interviewed someone who's like, well, it's only a matter of time before the drones themselves start arresting people, which is sci-fi dystopia, of, of course. What I was thinking is, I know people who build drone development software, and I know that some of that software depends upon libraries like these. And if you push a reg exchange and all of a sudden people are at a border, you know, do I want the risk for that as, as a developer? And so would I take $19 a month to, to satisfy my risk guilt? I don't know. But these are questions which are non-trivial in the sense of what, what may happen in the future. I know that was the most doomsday scenario possible without mentioning Hitler, which I just did. But it's very interesting to me. So I, when I saw the, the GitHub sponsors announcement, A, I jumped to these things and B, I'm like, okay, this is cool. Let's figure out how it's going to play out. Let's see who jumps on the bandwagon, who decides to really go for GitHub sponsorship and sees if that can fund their lifestyle and make them live happier lives. If so, Awesome. That's really cool. That's another way of getting money. You can combine it with Patreon. You can combine it with Open Collective. You combine it with Kickstarters and with traditional, you know, pay me on PayPal, donate some money buttons. And I think that's probably the right approach that people are going to be taking, not as a single solution, as in vendor lock-in with GitHub, but as one of a suite of tools by which it's possible if you're a charismatic developer with charismatic libraries to get paid. So looking at the sponsors program that just launched... What did they do wrong? What would you say that was a misstep? Now, this is, of course, you know, objective and and our opinion, but all three of us have very different backgrounds, but they're all uh, related to this. I actually have less of a background in open source maintaining. I'm an open source consumer. I, I love consuming open source and submitting patches or PRs to existing libraries, but I'm not the type of guy who who can just create libraries out of nothing like both of you can. So, when you look at the sponsors program, what do you wish would have happened? Do you mind if I take that? Please. Yeah. So first, I'd like to say, I think there are some things that they got really right. I want to address that first because mm. I, I don't want to just bash on the program because I think it's a fantastic, because you, you mentioned earlier, I do really think it's a fantastic step. I do want to note, you know, this almost feels like it's not even noteworthy because everybody's thinking this already. I mean, I see the, the conversation, but everybody's just kind of sitting there waiting for Microsoft to emerge, meaning <laughs> we, we all want to give Microsoft the benefit of the doubt. And we're loving this new Microsoft, but they just keep on teetering really close to that edge of, of being to Microsoft with GitHub. And they're, 
making a lot of changes really fast. Um, and I know this isn't this is only tangential to the question, but another example of this in Node.js is that it's now getting to a point where I get shamed literally for not coding my projects in TypeScript now. Yep. And to me, that's just, it's, um, so people say, why didn't you do this in TypeScript first? And I'm like, well, so it's a hundred lines of code and I didn't need TypeScript <laughs> to write it, right? It ex- exports like one function and, y- you know, it's just, I'm, I'm coming at it from a completely different set of concerns and a frame of reference. And I, I'm so comfortable and familiar with JavaScript and debugging and doing stack traces and stuff that it has never occurred to me that I need TypeScript yet, but I do understand my users need it. I just don't want to be shamed about it. Now, back to the, the, the question was about what did they do right? And I just wanted that to be a lead in to that. I think they're doing a lot of things right with sponsors, but what I don't want is another scenario where I feel like the kind of Microsoft culture is being forced on yep. the GitHub culture. And so far, what I see, if I'm just being you know, objective about it, is there's a great payment system being put in place. And so they're going to make it easy for other funding solutions to potentially plug into that. But right now, there's not any promise that that's going to happen. It's just links. Meaning when you click on a project, you can click on a little sponsors button and there's a list of links to other funding platforms, but that falls way short of any kind of integration or automation around those platforms to make them really, you know, an integrated part of the GitHub platform. How would that even look? I'm, I have no idea and they probably don't either. So it's a good first step. What did they get wrong? I think, you know, when we, we talked about this a little bit before we, we started the podcast today, I totally get the idea of rolling out a product incrementally, especially during a beta period. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And so I'm sure a lot of people disagree with this point, but this is a scenario where I think they should have just rolled this feature out to everyone and dealt with the consequences of it, or they should have done this a little bit differently. They rolled out this feature to a very small handful of of already very popular and well-funded individuals, or at least it seems to be the case. And I don't think that opinion is unique to me. I've seen discussion on Twitter about it. And it just kind of created a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth because I think that, you know, a lot of people are trying to get funded right now. And here we have a few select individuals who have already done a good job of promoting themselves, who are much more comfortable in social media and things like that. And we're in an industry where there are a lot of introverts, a lot of non-type A personalities. I don't like to promote myself on social media for example. And so this feels like it created a scenario where the people who already kind of are out there already have a big following, already have sponsors, were just given this big boost by GitHub. And um, that's going to make it, you know, people have a finite amount of money to give. And developers, first and foremost, are on the platform and are taking money out of their own pockets and giving it to these developers. So is that going to create an unequitable situation for people who come in later and start asking for funding? You know, you bring up a good point. This is how I've always pictured funding in open source, especially back, you know, using the Patreon model, even the open collective model for for the most part, and now the new sponsor model, is it feels like we're a bunch of developers sitting in a circle and everybody takes their wallet out or the purse out and takes a dollar out and hands it to the person to their right. And it really feels like that's what's going on. When that's never going to solve the problem, it's not bringing in new money. All it's doing is just, making each other feel really good. My view on this is it's, it's, it's more of the same. And I look at it more as a what 
does this solve the problem versus is this showing favoritism? Now, I do understand the favoritism. I'm looking at, you know, the GitHub sponsors page right now and right at the top of the page, they're like highlighting like eight projects or eight individuals and saying, hey, sponsor these guys. And so, you know, of course, they're going to get the most sponsorship. And on top of that, it, it is an incentivized sponsorship. I won't lie. I'm sponsoring someone not because I use their project. Pardon me. I have a crying child in the background. Not because I'm using their project, but because I want to participate as a sponsor. Now, the project that I want to sponsor, they don't have it set up. They're not accepted yet. And I'll mention them because I, I, I heart them so much. It's Metabase. I think Metabase is one of the best projects in the world. And I would love to give them continual money. But I can't because they're not approved yet. My point being is that at the end of the day, real money, real impactful money is going to come in one of two ways. One, it's going to come in a form of a micropayment across, you know, tens or thousands or John, Richard, as you said, millions of, of downloads where you get micropayments. And then those micropayments actually sum up to be uh, an amount that can make a difference or the money can't come from your peers. And I think that's the core of it. The money can't come from your peers. So sponsors is great, but it's not solving the problem of sustainability until they open it up to where corporations can pay then it's not going to be a huge benefit. And on top of that, corporations won't pay unless they see a return. My experience, my business experience, and I think I've shared this on another podcast, some other podcast, but my experience is I've, I've had a background where I was thrown into a very unethical situation where business and profit meant more than people's lives. And it made me so sick and felt so horrible. And because of that, I've really dedicated myself to making sure that anything I do is extremely ethical and extremely you know, humanitarian to a point. But it also opened my eyes to business. You know, those people who have made those decisions, which I find appalling, are now you know, multimillionaires. They're super rich. And that's how it works. And so the question is, how do we solve the problem when we're playing in somebody else's sandbox? And that's really what it comes down to. The, the, the people that have the money are the ones that own the sandbox. How do we solve our problems in their sandbox? Richard, what do you think about that? I think that's an incredibly good question. And it sort of goes back to what John said around shame, in a sense, of being locked into a community that wants you to do X when you want to do Y. And what does that mean? So when I see GitHub sponsors, I see them basically saying, okay, GitHub is not a one-stop solution to all of your computing needs and all of your life needs now. Um, it used to be GitHub was a repository. It was something almost like an SVN site, right? <laughs> Where like you push stuff to it and things are there. And then it's like, oh, cool, now it has a UI and now I can discover other projects. Oh, that's really cool. And then it became a community. Oh, yeah, those are the developers I know and now we're commenting on the same things. We're working collaboratively on GitHub. And then it became, okay, well, that's just where I find all of the source ever, forever. We've been in this podcast now for, I don't know, 30 minutes. No one's mentioned any of the other Git hosting websites, GitLab, uh, Bitbucket, right? Why don't they have a sponsorship program? Why aren't we talking about them? Well, because GitHub is one as far as where all the repos go. And now what GitHub is doing is saying, oh, well, since you're also putting your code here, why don't you also put your money here? And... All of open source is now boiled down to, can you have a project that's good enough to get sponsored? 
And that's where I see this inevitably going. And it's going to lead to, oh, why didn't you structure this program such that you can get a sponsorship for it? As opposed to, well, I just wanted to write in JavaScript, not TypeScript. That's not my fault, right? And so how can you play in other people's sandboxes is a- another way of phrasing that, I think. How can, you, how can you deal with the problem? Of course, we all have a problem where we all need to eat and money needs to come from somewhere else besides ourselves. That's just how it works. So my question is, how do we create sustainable ways to do that? I don't know. I don't think GitHub knows either. Um, and I think that they're trying to figure it out and they're doing a pretty interesting job at the moment. Where this will go in the future? I, I don't know. Man, that's, I'm just increasingly realizing how unintelligible I am in the long term. I hope that no, all came across. It was great, actually, and it was, it was uh, succinct in my opinion. Okay, good. Fantastic. John, I do have a comment about something that you said earlier. And you were talking about how you wish that they just open it up to everybody. Mm. And I think about that, and, and I honestly don't think that that would have been possible. There are so many... So international many money new, laws. International oh. money laws. There are so many nuances on KYC. There are so many issues regarding that. I'm more surprised that they did it in the first place yeah. than they didn't launch it. <laughs> I'm actually super surprised because they're now they're becoming liable for they're liable for 1099s. It's just such. It's basically a whole new business. That was actually you know, what what occurred to me. They said, "What did they do wrong?" If you look at the GitHub sponsors page. It says, we'll charge no fees, and we'll also cover the first year of processing, too. I think what they did wrong was including the word, too, because it draws attention to the fact that processing is going to be a problem in the future, which then yep. makes you immediately ask, well, how are you doing processing now? When are fees going to be implemented? Where's the fine print for that? You click on the link, you don't see fine print. You see more, hey, email us about stuff. I want to know what the fine print is. I want to know how they're doing the 1099s. I want to know how they're managing these things. Um, I wasn't trying to cut you off, uh, Eric. I just, I totally agree with you. I'm curious about that stuff. Absolutely. And I understand that they're, they're facing those issues. I know that they couldn't launch it, you know, worldwide. And I'm pretty certain that anybody that signs on who gets approved has to, has to fill out a W-9. And they're probably only approving U.S.-based projects right now, or U.S.-based individuals. So there are a few problems that I see with this, is that one, it, it's funding the individual, not the project. And I don't want to open that can because that's like a whole show. And, and John, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. How do you trickle that funding down to all of the dependencies uh, you know, appropriately? I don't know if there's a solution for that. But what I, I look at what they're trying to do. I understand it. But it does feel a little bit like we're going to lock you in. And then in a year, we're going we're gonna to profit. It's like we're going we're gonna to follow the Amazon method where we're just going to throw as many benefits to you as possible to make it so that you become locked into this platform, into this thing where we basically kill anybody else who might be doing anything about it. And then we're going to monetize. And that might be a little bit of like the, you know, 90s, 2000s, Microsoft versus the today Microsoft. I really understand they're trying to change their image. I think they're doing a fantastic job. But you're right. We're all wary of that. Now, one of the things that we talked about uh, before the call, and I want to be careful what I say, but I think it, it should be mentioned is what's to prevent individuals from defrauding this system. And when I say defrauding, something that could happen is somebody could say, okay, well, they're doing a hundred percent match. Richard, what if I like give, you know, 500 bucks to your project and you get a thousand and then you give 500 bucks to my project and I get a thousand and then we both come out $500 richer. What's to prevent that? 
to me, that's one of the most scary parts of what they're doing is because the matching, even though it's fantastic that they're matching, I've learned over the years that people are not honest to a certain point. Everybody has a point of, of dishonesty. And, and I say that because I see it. I see it within CodeFund. CodeFund, uh, we recently had somebody who was committing fraud and it breaks my heart and it makes me so furious that that's happening. But it's just an inevitability that there are going to be bad players who are going to take advantage of a system who are going to say, you know what, they're the ones that ruin it. Yeah, they're going to ruin, ruin it for everybody they're, else. Right. You know what, I'm going to tell you a quick little story because it's kind of funny, but a quick little story is I ruined bacon. I ruined bacon <laughs> for, for um, the, some health store locally, right? I ruined it. I'd go there every morning and I was on the Atkins diet and they had this bacon and you could, you could buy cooked bacon for like by weight. And it was like a dollar for 10 strips of bacon. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to buy 10 strips of bacon. And if you see me, you're like, yeah, that guy could eat 10 strips of bacon. <laughs> but I would go there and I'd buy it every, every day or every other day. And eventually I go there and they had this turkey bacon. I'm like, what the hell? So I went and talked to them like, yeah, we don't do that anymore. And she gave me a scowl. I'm like, okay, I ruined it for everybody. <laughs> Oh, you were eating all their bacon? Come on. I, I was eating all the bacon. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, that's a, a fun little tidbit. I don't think you should blame yourself for that. That's yeah, no, exactly what you should do when you see bacon for that price and you eat bacon. Yeah, so speaking of sustainability, yeah, I think that store should have been able to sustain the bacon <laughs> yes, you know, for more than one, one customer, I think. And that's what we're talking about here, sustaining yeah. bacon. So, that's right. You know, here on the SB podcast. Sustain the bacon. <laughs> Saving the bacon. By the way, Save I spent some time while, while you were talking, and I found at least one person, uh, Dirk Lemstra, who works on Image Magic, who is a sponsor on GitHub on their front page, who lives in the Netherlands. He may also have an American passport. I don't know. Uh, there's also some Canadians. So it looks like they did try to roll it out geographically. That's still within the Western world. I didn't find anyone from Namibia. I don't know how many coders there are in Namibia, but you know. Netherlands is definitely represented. So there, there, there were a few different kind of loose ends, a few different topics brought, brought up over the last few minutes that I, I wanted to comment on a few things. This is like another controversial thing, I think, in open source, but I don't have a problem with people making money. I don't have a problem with, with doing extremely well. And in fact, I would love it if everyone had the ability, including myself, to become fabulously wealthy. I think the main concern, and this is probably what's being said, but not really being articulated, is that we have to be careful of the economic incentive corrupting the values of the ecosystem. And that's where I really draw the line, is that I don't have a problem with GitHub making money. I don't have a problem with them doing things, adding features. And I think maybe what you were indicating earlier, Eric, was that you know some of the things that they're Uh, doing might be heavy-handed. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a little bit heavy-handed in that they're kind of creating more lock-in. You mentioned the Amazon approach. So that's business. And that's, you know, a good business will do that. And they're also in somewhat of a winner-take-all market to begin with. So they're just going to layer on additional services to make sure that they keep people longer. And that's good for their shareholders, you know, at least for, you know, for their forecast up 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 the chain at Microsoft. But I think that if they give people the opportunity to also do very well on the platform, that can be great for everyone as long as it doesn't corrupt the, you know, the thing that makes open source work. And to be clear about that, I don't mean some altruistic idea, some like, hey, some, just, just the spirit of collaboration, which is fantastic. But I mean the system, the economics, the value system that's been created 
I believe that, it, you know, and I'd love to see some real hard numbers around this, but the open source software community probably creates more economic value per capita than any other industry, yet none of that value comes back into the community. So I think there's just a tremendous amount of latent economic value being created that could be injected back into the community to fuel that. And instead of lopping the head off the goose that lays golden eggs, meaning if, if we're not careful and we do this the wrong way, we'll incentivize bad behavior, we'll incentivize bad actors, we'll incentivize anti-patterns, and we'll cut the, the head off the goose that lays golden eggs. If we do it the right way, we give developers a path to, to having their dream job to doing what they love every day and not being shamed for doing it, for not doing it for free. You know, when I t- try to spend time with my kids, I get people, I learned a long time ago, if I try to take a couple days off, I don't answer somebody in a half an hour or two hours, I get shamed on Twitter or whatever. People start, start bashing me. So I have to be on top of it to, to get ahead of the bashing. So that kind of thing would be great if we could solve that. And if funding can be put behind like finding co-maintainers and people to help triage and stuff like that, you know, and I think this is kind of, echoing what I'm hearing from everybody else. But if funding incentivizes bad behavior, then, then everyone, the open source developers and people who are consuming the software, everybody's going to be worse off as a result. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, same. Which is why I think one of the things which are really interesting, uh, which will be coming out in a few years, uh, Kyle Mitchell has a really good license, for example, where you see open source being dual licensed where it's free for individual scrappy developers who are just, you know, want to have a good time, but it's not free for enterprise. If you use an enterprise version of the software, then you should pay. Uh, I see Eric sh- shaking his head. That's, that's different. It's just, yeah. yeah. Dual licensing is a, it's a whole, it's a whole nother, a whole nother bag, but yeah. open yeah. source itself yeah. is part yeah. of the problem in the sense that we open source our software and therefore it's free. We, we should plan a whole, we'll plan a whole episode around that. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whole, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm that. highly opinionated on that topic. Nope. Putting, yeah. the worms, putting the worms back in the can. Um, no, no, okay. no, no, no need. That's a lead into our, to our next podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very opinionated on that. One of think, many possible solutions to try and solve yeah. the shame problem. Go. Eric, if you get a little bit more opinionated, you might just be a full-time programmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the next podcast is about semicolons. Oh. Yeah, you know, I'm I am opinionated on that as well. Yeah. So yeah, go, go, go ahead. <laughs> I, I I have I have a gray beard. I have gray hair. I've earned my opinions. So we all do actually. <laughs> right. I grew one so that I could get more airtime today. Just so you know, it would grow a little bit. I'm just Love kidding. it. That's what Love you got to do. Yeah. So you look at the issues that we have, and we're all sitting on this. By the way, I think constantly in analogies. I think constantly in metaphors and. And I visualize things, and that's how it makes sense to me. And the way I see it is every developer is, is like a, a great big ship, okay? You can't turn it 90 degrees. You can't, like, herd these developers 90 degrees. Only thing you can do is you got about a five-degree-each-way window of how much you can change them. And the amount of change it takes for a developer to make has to be, like, based on the amount of return they're going to get for that change, and that's something that I've always thought about. And that's, that's why I launched CodeFund. That's why I think advertising is one of the biggest benefits in open source that's not talked about. But yep. I know that developers will not change unless there's a huge benefit. Now, case in point, look at GitHub. Developers will not move their open source, or open source projects to anything other than GitHub 
because it doesn't make sense for them. Even, you know, even though GitLab offers, you know, 10 times more benefits under the sun than them, it's just not where open source lives. Network effects, yeah. It's, it's a network effect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I spoke at a conference and that question came up like, well, why are you only talking about GitHub? Why not GitLab? And I said, okay. And this audience had about 300 people. I said, how many people host their open source on GitHub? No, how many people have their code on GitHub? And like five people raised their hand out of the 300. Or sorry, GitLab. Five, five people. I said, okay, of those, how many of those projects are not private? And all of them lowered their hand. Like nobody's putting code on GitLab that's not private. And I even spoke with GitLab specifically about this. I spoke with one of their heads and I said, is this a concern? And they said, no, right now it's not a concern because they're hyper-focused on the uh, enterprise. They've carved their niche and GitHub has carved their niche. And at the end of the day, GitLab might be more profitable than GitHub, but GitHub is where all of this resides. So I know we're uh, running up on time. Do you guys have any more comments on this? Probably need to wrap up. Richard, John, do you have anything? I agree. I wish network effects didn't exist. They're incredibly difficult. And I think the GitHub sponsors move is incredibly powerful because GitHub is around and it's unlikely they're going to Google plus this tomorrow. This is going to be here. It's here to stay. So the question now becomes not, Oh, do I, do I like this? It becomes, okay, how can I most effectively play within the system and figure out whether GitHub sponsors works for me and my projects or whether it's something I want to invest my personal money into for other people. If I'm, for instance, trying to pay Babel, do I pay Henry Zhu using GitHub sponsors? Do I do it using Open Collective or do I not do it at all and get by? That's the current question. Uh, Everything changed last week, which is fascinating and awesome. And I'm looking forward to the next major milestone. Who knows what that's going to be? Yeah, I would, I would just add that it's it's too early for me to to give a positive or negative. I'm I'm going to be cautiously optimistic, and I, I think that GitHub has a very good track record of of doing it right. Honestly, the only thing that throws a wrench into that, or not a wrench, but rather you know throws a little bit of trepidation or concern into it, is that this feels like the first really really big feature release from GitHub that was this noteworthy at least since Microsoft bought GitHub. So. You know, it's too, it's just too early for me to to tell. The jury's still out about what the future holds for this feature, but I am really interested to see how well GitHub sponsors plays with other solutions. As of now, there is every indication that GitHub sponsors is is basically just trying to be a payment solution and a way of connecting money to developers. They're not trying to add a lot of other additional value. Beyond that, they're leaving that to the to the other platforms and the other external solutions. And that, I think if they stick to that, it's really exciting. And that gives people a lot of flexibility and ability to, to connect into GitHub to make sure that that money finds its way to where it's needed. Yeah. And I, I, I do applaud GitHub. I heard about how GitHub was pre-Microsoft, and it did seem a little bit scattered. It did seem like the yep. left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And with the new uh, Microsoft takeover, it feels like they're, they're bringing order and a, a true desire to help where I think before, I, don't, I, don't, I can't personally say that that existed. In fact, I could probably say that it did not exist. And so I, I applaud them for that. I think that what Devin has done is outstanding. I wish her the best. I hope that she continues to innovate and involve people in those innovations. But I also hope that in these processes and in these new launches that they do, they don't negate or even kill 
life work that others have dedicated themselves to build in solving this problem. They have the money and the power of Microsoft, and they have the ability to squash people who have really put in, dedicated themselves, dedicated their families, dedicated their lives to solving this problem, and have built companies around that. I really urge them to consider those companies before they launch products and possibly kill off other people's livelihoods. That's probably the biggest thing that I I fear. That's kind of a a gloomy note to end on. So let me just bring back the bacon. You know, think of bacon. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure. Can you bring back the bacon? No, they won't bring back the bacon. Yeah, I'm not not sure that they're going to do that. No, they're not going to do that. They see this big guy coming in, a word to bacon. (laughs) Just letting you know, if you go to the butcher at the counter and say, I would like a special bacon rack made and I'll buy it in bulk, you will get a discount. So it's possible you can get bacon discounts yourself by just utilizing the butcher. That's why. So I you're to... saying that Eric can bring back the bacon? He can bring can back bring the bacon. bacon. I can bring home the bacon. Yeah, you just this need is, a bit more, a bit more thought into it. So, and I, so I think I speak for everybody who's listening that we're all relieved and we can all take a deep <laughs> breath now. Yes. Did we want to um, segue into our uh, picks? Picks. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Simple let's uh, let's let's drive right into that. Who wants to go first? Well, I brought it up, so I guess everybody's looking at me. So I have a couple. One is I'd like to share a book. I, I share this, you know, this book anytime I can. I've mentioned it on Twitter before, but it's, it's one of my favorite books. It's called uh, Man's Search for Meaning yep. by mm. Viktor Frankl. And that book means a tremendous amount to me. I read it every few years. You know, if you suffer from depression or you suffer from just finding your place in the world or trying to understand you know, why you're here or what, what it is that you can, you know, leave behind in this world, how you can, you know, find meaning and value in your life. And there are obviously many ways that you can do that besides this book. But this book for me was a way of doing it in a way that's disassociated with religion. And so, you know, regardless of religion or spirituality or, or whatever, this is, you know, look at this as additive to that. The book is, is tremendously deep and was written by uh, Viktor Frankl, after his experience in um, Nazi imprisonment camps. And uh, so I don't want that to scare people off and make you think that it's a very heavy and, and sad book. It's actually tremendously uplifting. Um, and that's the whole purpose of the book. And the second thing that I would like to uh, call people's attention to is Eric Berry. Eric is, is a huge, and I mean this actually, he's a very, very incredible resource for the community. And I'm just now learning how much experience Eric has in funding and understanding this problem. And I'm going to spend a lot more time reading about Eric's background and all the <laughs> amazing projects that he's created after I get off this show. I've already done this, but I'm just going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to become an Eric stalker after to, No, we're not going to go that far, but I'm definitely going to be uh, following Eric a little bit more. I have bacon. <laughs> <laughs> well, and everybody loves bacon. Except for vegans and vegetarians. No, I just kind of stepped in it, didn't I? Let's <laughs> yeah. edit that part out. Uh, I don't know how to go uh, from there, but I, I, I really appreciate the kind words. The same back at you. I had to do a bunch of research on you when we started the show, and I was blown away by what you pulled off and done and, Thank you. and how much you carry. Such a great, great individual to be a member of our community and – it's people like you that make me money, and I, I thank you for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll go ahead and do my picks real quick since I'm already chatty. Recently, I've tried out this new app, and I guess it's still up in the air. Now, 
the first pick I'm going to have is Metabase, metabase.com. If you haven't used it, if you have a Postgres database, a MySQL database, a SQLite database, whatever you have, even if you want to be able to build dashboards around Google Analytics, it does all that for you. Now, these guys have built this product for free. It is an open source platform, an open source thing that you can run on your Mac. You can run on servers. It runs on Heroku. It's fantastic. We build all of our reporting off of it, 100% free, support them. If there's ever a way to support them, support them financially. The other thing that I'm trying out now is, a, is an app called Shift. Now, as a, um, somebody who, who now runs a company, I'm a developer trying to be an entrepreneur, this app allows me to put all of these applications under one, one app. So I've got, I'm looking at right now, I have six email accounts and I've got eight apps that are open all under one Chrome and it makes it super simple because I just have one window instead of, you know, all of my different windows open. Again, jury's still out on whether I'm going to stay with it, but I did pay for it. It's 100 bucks a year. But, you know, we'll see. Those are my picks. Richard, how about you? Well, we have a book. So that's awesome. I was going to suggest some books, but then we also have apps. So I'm going to suggest something different, which is the movie Momentum Generation, which I saw on the plane recently coming back from Japan. I also saw seven other movies. Crazy Rich Asians is awesome. But... Momentum Generation is a fantastic movie about surfers, some surfers who really got together at a place called Benji's House. It was Benji's House on the North Shore in the 90s and early 2000s. They were the first kids to really put punk rock together with surfing. And you've heard some of their names. You've heard of Kelly Slater. You may have heard of Rob Machado. And these guys, basically, it's just a small group and just went on to all of them become amazing professional surfers. And the movie is incredible, tracing like their adolescence, going into their 20s, going to competitions, going to the loss of a friend, and then coming back to today where kind of the moral of the story is, hey, WhatsApp groups are awesome because you get to talk to your friends every day and let's all go surfing and chill out a bit more. I've really found it very moving. I don't know whether it's because I was incredibly jet lagged and on the plane, but super awesome. Look it up. Momentum Generation. Perfect. And uh, as always, we'd love to thank our sponsors for this podcast. Uh, we appreciate you guys. We know that it's uh, sponsorship is definitely a gift from you. So thank you. And uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. We look forward to talking next week. Next week, it sounds like we're going to be discussing what were we going to discuss? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're going to talk about all the like every controversy, I think it was semicolons and uh, oh, like semicolons white space. And, and, and licensing. Yeah, and, and license, licensing. white space and white, white space. space. Yes, tabs are tabs are spaces. Of course, I, I right, think we'll, we'll pivot to something else before. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, everyone. All right, take care. See you next week. Right. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. 